Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on the 8th of March at about 2.30pm uh, London time. As always, if you want to find out more about uh, Talking Terror, about our future episodes, about future guests, uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at terror underscore podcast or follow me at Morrison underscore JF. We are delighted, as always, to have this series sponsored by IB Taurus, an imprint of Bloomsbury Publishing Group. So if you want to, um, if you want to write that book on terrorism or counterterrorism and you've been looking for a home for it, be sure to check out IB Taurus. And also follow us on Twitter to find out about that, uh, that code to get a discount, a 35% discount off all the IB Taurus books as well. Um, Oh yes, sorry, I nearly forgot. If you want to do a Master's in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies and you're interested in doing it with us at Royal Holloway University of London, be sure to check out all the information about that on our website, rhul.ac.uk, and we'll be starting that in September 2019. It's available full-time or part-time, and if you take that Master's course, you'll have an opportunity to work on this very podcast. Anyway... On with today's episode. It's my great uh, pleasure to welcome on today's pod Vidya Ramalingam, the f- co-founder and co-director. Is it? It's co-founder and co-director, is Of uh, of Moonshot CVE. We had her other co-founder uh, on series one, Ross Frenish, talking about the role of the private sector in countering terrorism and countering violent extremism, more appropriately. But today we are going to be talking to Vidya about her research and her experience in relation to far-right extremism, her research that dates back prior to Moonshot CV, but also how that has influenced uh, the development of Moonshot and the work that they do now. So Vidya, thank you so much for being on today's pod. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honour to be on. No problem, no problem. So how did you first get involved in this area of research in far-right extremism? You had a background in anthropology from as far as I know, and then migration studies as well. So what drew you to the... Um, I, I might need to go back even before my, my bachelor's degree and my, and my studies, just to, to, to give you some context, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about race when I was a kid. Um, grew up as a, a kid of Indian immigrants in um, a part of America that is that is broadly diverse. I grew up in New Jersey, it's one of the most diverse states. Yeah. Um, but the, the community that I grew up in, I was, I was one of the only kids with, with dark skin. Spent a lot of time throughout my childhood feeling deeply uncomfortable in my own skin and you know, as I got older, thinking more about about race, about identity, about um, my background as the kid of, of immigrants, um, I became increasingly fascinated with communities that felt strong attachments to their race and their identity. Um, especially as someone, when I was a kid, I was I you know, was so quick to reject my Indian identity. I just wanted I wanted more than anything to be a, a white kid, and so I was fascinated by um, you know communities that held on to this idea of white identity. Um, white nationalist movements and far-right movements always fascinated me. Just mm-hmm. you know, what, what would pull someone into a headspace where they believed that another race was, was inferior. Yeah. Um, I, I began my studies uh, with as an anthropologist. I, I did an anthropology degree, and um, for me, field work was always a critical methodology to, to deeply understand any aspect of, of society. And um, you know, I, I 
I, I was doing a lot of work after college and during college around racism and, uh, and kind of anti-racism movements mm -hmm. and became increasingly frustrated at the unwillingness of so many of my fellow um, you know, anti-racism activists or people that were working on, on those issues, um, the lack of willingness to talk to people on the other side, to talk to people in far-right movements and to understand them. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of... Um, you know, galvanizing the great and the good against against racist groups, but very little willingness to, to understand them. And to my mind, if you're going to try and get someone out of a movement, that's the, the first thing you need to do is you need to talk to them. So, um, you know, I, I was very lucky in that I managed to convince a, um, well, both my advisor at the time, uh, against all odds, and also uh, get a fellowship to support me in doing a, a project uh, where I essentially attempted to do field work with white nationalist movements. Um, I picked Sweden as my country of study. I had been working on Scandinavian issues for, for several years at that point, had lived briefly in Denmark and had, um, had, had spent some time when I was in Denmark um, getting to understand anti-immigrant and far-right movements in Denmark. And I picked Sweden um, for a few reasons because it's a, a country that um, has incredibly large neo-Nazi movement, which is oftentimes unbeknownst to, to the wider world. Um, Sweden at the time had the second largest neo-Nazi movement in Europe, next to Germany. Um, and it's a country that, you know, from an outside perspective, everyone believes to be incredibly tolerant and, and a kind of bastion of, of liberal, <laughs> liberal progressiveness. And, um, you know, these movements were very much swept under the carpet, and the history of those movements there was very much swept up under the carpet, at least at the time. And this is now and, um, you know, so I, I, I undertook uh, a field work with these groups. I had spent three years learning Swedish, um, became decently good at Swedish. Um, the reality was my experience during field work with these movements was never going to be the same as a lot of other researchers that were attempting similar work at the time, largely because, you know, I'd, I'd say the community of academics and practitioners that were attempting to do field work were largely, largely male and largely white. Um, and I, I am, uh, you know, those who are listening here won't be able to see my face, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an Indian American woman, um, and I knew that was going to be a challenge, but I, I, I wanted to do it nonetheless. I thought it was really important to, um, for me, if I wanted to, to build a career working on this issue, I knew it was critical for me to talk to people in the movement. And so with these challenges in mind and with the aim of getting this understanding in mind, how did you go about First of all, setting up this field work. How did you um, make contact with the individuals and with the groups? And how did you get that trust that you could go in and, and do that? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, started, I started with a really simple tactic. I just turned up to their rallies. Um, you know, I, I would say I had a two-pronged approach. I, on the one hand, looked for any individuals that were affiliated with the movement who I could contact online, mm -hmm. um, and I and I, I sent you know I did cold calling, emailing them, um, introducing who I was, and saying I wanted to meet with them. Um, I tried that tactic, but then I also would just turn up to demonstrations. Uh, I went to every single rally and demonstration I could um, in my first month, and um, you know they started to notice me. I, it was obvious because I you know I was the the Indian woman that would turn up to every demonstration. They started to, to know me as that. And I later found out from 
my informants and interviewees that um, you know that their curiosity because they saw me at a few events, their curiosity was what led them to respond to my emails because they you know they, they were wondering why I was there. Um, so I yeah, it was kind of a dual pronged approach and then once I found a couple of gatekeepers, people who I built a built a relationship with, they then opened up the doors to to many more. Um, I think in some ways uh, while, while one might expect that being a, a you know a person of color going and speaking to white nationalists that they would reject me, um, I honestly think their confusion um, and that you know they were just bewildered as to why I was talking to them, and I think that opened up a lot of doors because they wanted to ask me questions. They were asking they wanted to know why the hell I wanted to talk to them. Yeah. Um, so I think that confusion opened up some some yeah. doors. And so just for our listeners to set the context, when was this research taking place and what was the overall context of far-right extremism within uh, Scandinavia, th- within Scandinavia as well, more locally where you were at yeah. the time? So this was between 2009 and 2010, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the context at the time was that um, there, there was a, as I mentioned, there was a very vibrant and quite large neo-Nazi scene. It was a scene that operated very much under the radar, so there wasn't a huge amount of media coverage of it. And in fact, um, the way that the media tended tended to operate, it was a general rule that media would not report on these sorts of these sorts of groups because you know, the idea was you don't talk about it and they you know they, they won't get a platform. Okay. Um, the movement that in particular that I focused my study on is a movement that has now developed. Um, and is now, I should, I should state very clearly, is now a, party, a political party that's represented in Parliament. Okay. So the group that I was focusing on is uh, a party called the Sweden Democrats. Mm-hmm. At the time, in 2000, in 2000 and, so I, I did the scoping for my work in 2008, and then 2009 was when I kicked off the study. Um, they were not represented in Parliament. They, were very, they very much considered themselves to be a movement that was transitioning into a party. Okay. And the origins of the party, they had begun in 1988, and they began as a movement called Keep, Keep Swedish Sweden. Mm. Sorry, Keep Sweden Swedish, mm. excuse yeah. me. Um, Keep Sweden Swedish. They, they had started as a street movement and um, very much identified as a neo-Nazi movement. Okay. Um, you know, they, they would have men with uh, Nazi uniforms that were leading you know, marches. That lasted well through the 90s and into the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only very recently that they had banned Nazi uniforms from their meetings and their gatherings. And in the couple of years before I did my field work, they had been attempting to transform themselves into a palatable party that could be that could be you know, elected and mm-hmm. actually get a platform. Yeah. So there was a, um, an old part of the movement and a new part of the movement that came in mm-hmm. to really professionalize the, the, um, you know, the, the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and that split was very obvious when I, you know, as I continued to do my field work, that mm-hmm. there were occasions where I was meeting with individuals who, who told me that they, that they aligned with the neo-Nazi scene. Mm-hmm. And there were also individuals that I met with who said, absolutely not, you know, I am not a neo-Nazi, I am, you know, I am, I am just against immigration, I just believe Sweden should be a white country, um, but I am not a neo-Nazi. Um, all the way through to individuals I met who really I came to say were skeptics rather than um, than on any extreme. So the the range of individuals that were aligned with this particular movement or party um, was very, very wide. And I 
touched on that entire range of individuals that were, that were affiliated. So when we're talking about this group and this movement at the time, what kind of tactics and strategies were they utilizing? So were, were you seeing, um, not maybe not directly, but was there, were there violent tactics? Was it more street demonstrations? And, and also, was, was there a counter-protest movement a, against them? As well? uh, street pro- protests and demonstrations was their main tactic. Mm-hmm. Um, there were counter-demonstrations at every single protest. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, they would break down into fights um, between anti-fascists and, and Sweden Democrats. Um, that was not uncommon. Um, several individuals that I interviewed during that time period went on to be convicted of assault charges, um, some related to demonstrations that were held, mm-hmm. others which were um, you know, racially aggravated assault. Um, so vi- violence was present at times, but certainly the, the moment in history when I did my, my field work, they were trying to professionalize the, mm-hmm. the image of the party and, and, and show themselves as a political party rather than a movement. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I did my field work right at this kind of critical critical cusp mm-hmm. where they, where they had, were just making that transition. Um, so yeah, you know, at the time, street movements were, were their main their main way of, of showing showing the community that they were there. Um, you know, I would imagine now they they operate very much so as a political party yeah. and would probably mirror the mainstream parties. And so, from your interviews and what you from your discussions with people and uh, as well uh, your observations of them, what was the motivation? What why were people becoming involved? Was it purely in relation to anti-immigration? There was there, or was there something else underlying? Was there a, a would you would you define it as racism? What was uh, drawing people towards it, or how? What was the what were the motivating factors? Well, every every person's story was so different because you know, there there were individuals in there who had been who had been in the neo-Nazi scene for decades mm-hmm. and for whom joining this group was, they, they believed it was their chance to have a, a, a political voice. Mm-hmm. Um, for them, their stories um, are not dissimilar to the stories that I, you know, I, I now having worked with, with, with many former neo-Nazis across countries, um, you know, the stories of those individuals and that part of the movement that I met with at that time were very similar to the, the cases of you know, former neo-Nazis that I worked or in, in Canada or in the UK. Um, you know, some of them had come from families that were broken and this movement gave them you know, gave them a sense of brotherhood and mm-hmm. gave them a, a sense of, of, of purpose and identity and safety, especially because you know, if you're in one of these movements in a country like Sweden, there's a lot of stigma yeah. against these movements as, 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 there, you know, as there is in nearly any, any Western European context, certainly. Um, you know, it's it's not it's not an easy life. I don't I don't want to say I, I, I you know I, I feel bad for them, but it's not an easy life being a being a neo Nazi. Mm-hmm. And you know this group offered them protection. So once you're in that sort of group, it's hard to leave because okay. you know you, you you've already you've already abandoned everyone else in your social circle. This circle becomes your group. So there were definitely stories that I heard that that were very yeah very much along those lines that you know they had they had been beaten up by anti fascists mm-hmm. and this group provided them protection. But then going um, a little bit further away from the extremes, there were you know, individuals that had had experienced being bullied as a kid by, uh, you know, by, by an immigrant or a Muslim, as they would, you know, they would say, you know, Muslim, a Muslim would, um, would 
beat me up when I was a kid. And, you know, I, I just think that, that the country is going down the drain with Muslims and, you know, why can't we just go back to white Sweden? Um, and so there were a lot of individuals that um, would, would not be, I could not classify them as neo-Nazis, but they had had a genuine experience in their lifetime or a perceived experience that, um, that had led them into this group was very rational. You know, they were very rational about why they were there. Um, and then there were individuals that, um, you know, were just... They, they just believed that um, they just wanted to go back to, to the old days. Okay. They, you know, they, they remembered Sweden when it was a more homogenous country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, waves of immigration really only came to Sweden in the 70s and 80s and then into the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and so they remembered a Sweden of yore. And they, you know, that was a white Sweden where they felt that there were le less problems. Mm -hmm. And so you know, they, they wanted to go back to something which just you know, will, will probably never, never come. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a real range, and it depended yeah. on where they were in that kind of, yeah, extreme. Yeah, and did you witness, like, thinking, moving fast forward into where you are now, but to consider the role that you see and you're, you're involved with through Moonshot CV and through your other work since with exit programs, for example. Were you witnessing any exit programs there, uh, whether locally based or, or governmentally organized? Um? Yes, so there's, there's a long-standing NGO called Exit Sweden, mm. which is based out of an organization called Fruitskuset, which is mm. a, it's a social, social work entity, mm. essentially. Um, it's a long-standing program that has worked to get people out of neo-Nazi movements um, I, I highly respect their methods, and they, they do very good work, and they have some, some pretty solid evidence to back up the, um, you know, their, their methods for getting people out of movements. Um, they were active when I, when I was there, um, and, I, and I continued to work with them in the years that followed my field work. Okay. Um, none of the individuals that I met with, um, none of the individuals that I met with had ever referenced those exit programs, and I'm thinking specifically of the individuals that were more on the neo-Nazi side of the spectrum mm -hmm. when I was doing my field work. I never heard them acknowledge or reference exit, you know, the, ex the exit organizations that were there. Um, and because that wasn't the inquiry of my study, I, I didn't ask them about, mm -hmm. about those, uh, those groups. But I certainly do know those groups were active mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah, and actually, what we've on this podcast, we, we've had people from a range of academic discipline, disciplinary backgrounds. We actually, I know you, you know his work, we've had Joel Busher on before, who similarly has a background in anthropology as well. So how did you find anthropology as an academic discipline benefited you uh, to, to carry out this research? I think my anthropological background and training was, was crucial. Mm. Um, the challenge for me was matching what I had learned about the history of anthropology and the, the discipline of anthropology with my own experience as a person of color carrying out anthropological inquiry on, on a group of white men. Mm -hmm. So you know, as, as everyone will know who's listening, I hope, uh, the history of anthropology is you know, very much steeped in, in history of colonialism and here was largely based on white researchers from mm -hmm. Europe traveling to parts of the world in Africa and India and carrying out anth anthropological studies. And those studies are still, they still form the base of you know, the way that, that, that anthropology is taught as a discipline to university students today. Um, there are some, some great, more recent um, you know, attempts to shake up some of, those, some of those principles of anthropology that have, that stemmed from the, you know, the, the 20s and the 30s. 
but certainly when I learned anthropology, it was very much looking at those very, very old um, interpretations of how, of how you carry out participant observation and field work. Um, for me, um, you know, reading about how field work is conducted in a context where a white researcher is working with a, a group of, of, of um, people of color mm -hmm. in a different context, the power dynamic there, I could not find a way to relate it to the power dynamic that I was dealing with as a being a woman of color in a largely male-dominated movement um, and, and in a movement that sees people of color as the enemy. So I, I, you know, I personally at the time felt like I needed to invent my own interpretation of, of, of the discipline that yeah. I had been taught. Um, and if anyone is interested, um, speaking of Joel Busher, I, I contributed a chapter to a book that, um, that Joel and, and others have put together around um, field methods, um, methods of inquiry for, uh, for the far right. And I've written a bit about my experiences doing an anthropological study of the far right as a person of color. Um, so that, that will also share some of the details of it. But, um, you know, for, for me, uh, that managing that power dynamic was the most challenging part of that field work. Um, gaining access, um, maintaining my personal security, um, especially given that when I was leading the movements, I mean, you know, yes, I attended demonstrations which were in public, but if you wanted to meet the movement at the heart of the movement, you needed to go to their offices, yep. which at the time, you know, now now this is a, let's remember this is a party that's represented in parliament now, hmm. now they've got offices in parliament. Yeah. Um, at the time, their offices, their head office was in a bunker in a, um, hidden away in a parking lot, um, it's an underground bunker in a parking lot, unmarked, um, in an unmarked you know, part of Stockholm, and it wasn't a known address. I was given this address by a party activist and needed to go, um, you know, go to this bunker where I knew I was about to go meet with a group of white nationalists. Mm -hmm. um, so you, know, you have to ask yourself a lot of questions as a, as a woman, as a person of color, mm -hmm. going into that about how you're going to manage you know, every possible scenario that could unfold. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, made I, I took some calculated risks and, um, and did it. There were definitely occasions where, um, you know, where I, I um, had to make swift exits from situations, especially given um, that alcohol was very, you know, was at the time very important to the movement. Mm -hmm. um, and if you really want to understand these groups, you're, you're going to be spending time with some of your interview subjects when they're inebriated, mm -hmm. um, you know, when they're expecting you to have alcohol with them. Okay. And then you add on to that the, the gender dynamic involved there and also the racial dynamic that's involved there. Um, you know, there were certainly moments where I felt I needed to make a swift exit because mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if I was in control of the situation. Okay. But um, you know, you take you, you make those calculated risks and you mm -hmm. and you play, you do your best and find your way. Um, but certainly, what I had learned about the discipline of anthropology was helpful. Mm -hmm. But there were limits, and I needed to to kind of create my own way as I as I as I actually did the field work. Was there ever a time that you just thought this isn't worth it? I have to leave. Uh, it's just it's. In a situation like that, say when there is alcohol there, when you felt your security was at risk, was there ever that stage? Or? There were a couple of moments, mm. I would say, um, especially when alcohol was involved. Yeah. Um, you know, there was there was a particular moment I remember where I was in a car um, being driven by a number of individuals in the movement. We were coming back from a um, a social event, mm -hmm. um, and I. I, I suddenly just had a sense, I'm not, you know, I, I actually don't feel I'm in control of the situation. I'm not sure where the car is going. The, the way the conversation was, the, the direction the conversation was going in, the kinds of 
racial things that were being said made me deeply uncomfortable, mm -hmm. and so I, I had to negotiate a swift exit from, from the car. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there were moments like that. There were also moments where, um, you know, just the, the emotional toll of, you know, it's just, it, it just hits you, mm -hmm. and you need to exit because you, you just can't, can't continue. Um, and, you know, you, you find yourself as a person of color in a room where, you know, they're putting up slides of a, um, you know, a, a black person's brain, a Muslim's brain, and a white Swede's brain, and, <coughs> excuse me, and, um, you know, talking about, about how, um, you know, black, black people's brains are pre-wired to, uh, to for, for criminality and rape. Yeah. And, you know, being in a, in a room of, of uh, white men who are all laughing and nodding along and looking at you because they want to see your reaction mm -hmm. and, you know, not knowing whether you can, you know, you, you know you don't want to nod, you know you don't want to smile, but you also can't frown or look alarmed or look shocked because then they'll, you know, they'll see you as the enemy. Um, you, ha you have to very carefully manage your reactions in those sorts of scenarios when you feel personally under attack and also feel deeply uncomfortable. And, um, you know, there were moments where the emotional toll that that takes on you, you just, you know, I, I just needed to leave. Um, there was a moment where I had to pull myself out of field work for a few days um, and also a moment where I pulled myself out for a week because, you know, it was just, it was just too much of an emotional um, and with all this in mind then, and with your earlier uh, experiences in New Jersey and the way that you uh, you were personally dealing with um, with the community you were you were growing up in and being as you said, being somewhat uncomfortable as well, how could you how did you manage to take a step back from all of these situations and be able to analyze exactly and get that understanding because it, that must have been hugely challenging then. I think what, what helped me to do that was the personal relationships that I built with my interview subjects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's when you're, when you're in a position where the things that are being said and the, the things you're witnessing are disturbing, what brings you back to ground is when you realize that these are human beings and when you start to understand why they feel that way and understand what got them there. And once you start to understand what got them there, then you start to see how you can change someone's mind. Mm -hmm. Now, I wasn't doing my field work to do interventions. Yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't doing my mm -hmm. field work to change their minds. Yeah. But I would say that my experience doing field work certainly you know, has fed into that we now take in, mm. in, with Moonshot and the yeah. work that we're doing here, um, and the approach that I take to understanding how you how you actually interact with someone who believes things which are so destructive, and how you know how can you actually change their minds? What what is it? And you know, it, if not the you know persuasive argument, what what else can you give them? Whether it's you know an experience or whether it's changing something in their lives mm -hmm. that will help them to see the world in a different way or help them to realize they don't need this group, they don't need this movement. Um, so I think, you know, in order to be able to do analysis, it was important, an important way for me to ensure I didn't get bogged down with the distress of the things I was hearing was to understand the humanity of the people that I was, that I was spending time with, getting to know them, understanding them, and, and, and that just gave me, it gave me the optimism that I needed to be able to then 
approach my analysis with as fresh eyes as I could. Yeah, well, actually, be, we're going to get onto that that how this has influenced uh, Moonshot and the work that that you and Ross and your team are doing here. But before we leave this field work, what advice would you give to someone else? who is about to embark or is designing or planning their field work at the moment in a similar similar situation? Any key advice that you would give them? One thing I would say is for, uh, for women who are considering doing field work with male-dominated movements, for people of color that are considering doing field work with far-right movements, yeah. one thing I would say is don't let the limitations stop you. Um, you know, there were lots of people who told me, You're, you won't be able to get access. Mm-hmm. You're crazy. You won't. You, like, they won't talk to you. It's unsafe. There were there were so many reasons not to do it, mm-hmm. and it's really important to keep perspective on the reasons to do it and how to do it in a safe in a safe and effective manner mm-hmm. in a way that, that protects you as as, a, as someone who is also vulnerable and going into into that field work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would I would very much encourage people who believe that there are too many limitations to mm-hmm. think through the positive contributions that their study can make to. And to adjust and shape their research based on some of those limitations. So, yes, yes, my work was limited in some ways by the fact that I was a woman and a person of color. But I just ensured that my field work and my the subject of inquiry, my research questions, were always written and designed, bearing in mind my own identity as a researcher. Um, I, I ended up framing my research around um, around my interactions, basically looking at it as an Seeing, seeing myself, you know, putting myself as a researcher into the petri dish, along with, mm. along with the, um, you know, the, the, the um, microbes that I'm, yeah. that I'm interacting with, yeah. and seeing how I change the dynamic. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's it's a challenging thing to do, but it's also a really rewarding thing to do. And I think um, people, yeah, people, people like me do have a value added to this sector in doing this research. And I would just encourage people yeah. to um, look past the limitations and look at how they can find a way forward. Oh. Without a doubt, no. It's it's great advice. It's and it's it's hugely impressive work to hear about, and it's 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 fascinating. And so I said at the beginning that we interviewed Ross uh, in series one, but I'm not expecting all our listeners to press pause and go back to his episode to find out exactly who Moonshot CVE are. So. Who, what exactly is Moonshot CV? And you've obviously had time in between that research and developing Moonshot, but what's the aim of, of Moonshot CV? What do you do here? Um, and and how did that, that research and what came afterwards for you? How did that influence you in deciding this was this was the way to move my career forward and this was the the right mechanism to to achieve the goals that we have that you have within within your work as well. So to, to start with, um, you know, what is Moonshot CVE and what is our mission? Um, you know, Ross and I set up Moonshot CVE three and a half years ago, and we set up with an incredibly ambitious mission. It's to disrupt and ultimately end violent extremism. You know, I realize that's ambitious, but you know, my, my firm belief is that this is a solvable problem. Mm-hmm. I've, worked, I've worked with individuals that are in these movements. I've worked with individuals that are on their way out of these movements and that have already gone out of these movements and are on the other side. And to be able to see that transition and to, to know that that change is possible gives me the optimism that I need to, to, to know that that mission is achievable. We, we set up the organization specifically to um, build the kind of infrastructure, the kind of business infrastructure 
that would facilitate the innovation that we believe needs to take place mm -hmm. in order to deliver that work effectively and also in a modern era. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our work is largely, largely in, in integrated into digital, it, it's kind of in, encompasses digital methods mm -hmm. because we live in the 21st century and, um, you know, our lives do not just exist offline, but exist online. Um, it incorporates digital methods alongside offline human relationships. And the, the ultimate aim of any of our digital work is to facilitate offline, you know, long-term interaction with any one individual and to facilitate that transition from being, you know, being embedded in a movement or being on the fringes of a movement to, um, you know, to facilitate that exit from a, from a movement. Right. So we, you know, we, we set up the company because we saw a gap in the wider sector. <laughs> I had spent many years working with NGOs after that field work, working <laughs> with NGOs, um, working on responses to far-right extremism, far-right terrorism, and having worked in not-for-profits, you're constantly constrained in your ability to trial test new things, mm -hmm. to take risks. Um, you know, you've got a charity board that, that just, you know, can't have their own names affiliated with, yeah. uh, with this sort of risk that's involved in those mm -hmm. sorts of programs. Um, and especially if you want to build programs that are suitable for the 21st century and, and involve the internet, um, you know, charities oftentimes don't have the infrastructure to to do the sort of technological innovation that you know, West Coast startups in the U.S. can. Um, so we built it. We wanted to build a company that had a business model that could allow us to do that. And what we've created is a an entity that operates very much as a social enterprise, whereby you know we are for profit and we reinvest our profit into our own research and development programs where we're trial testing new things, we're building new technology, and that then helps to feed back into our programming. And so what what would some of the, the core projects that you're involved with at the moment be that you can discuss? Um, and are there any that are focusing on the far right and utilizing that, that expertise that you have in relation to far right extremism? But and also, what other forms of extremism are you looking at? So we, we work across all forms of extremism um, and have a, actually a, a pretty even split of programs at the moment that work on jihadism, um, the violent far right. Mm -hmm. We also do programs on um, you know, Buddhist extremism in Myanmar, Hindu nationalist extremism in India, um, you know, ethno-nationalism in the Balkans. Um, so we, we work across different forms of extremism, and for us, it's the it's, it's a set of core methodologies that sit at the heart of it. And our methods um, range from you know, digital programming, where we're just you know, trying to, to get to get more co positive content in front of people that need to see it, and we're interacting with with quite you know destructive content online, through to the facilitation of of kind of building one-on-one -on -one relationships between social workers and an individual in the movement, mm -hmm. um, and building those relationships online and then taking them offline. Mm -hmm. um, at, what I would say is at the heart of all of our work is, is personal relationships, and our firm belief is you can build pers personal relationships online, mm -hmm. and that new technology can help us to do that at scale. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, while, while I could, if I were a social worker, I could sit here all day and could probably message, you know, 100 who I believe are at risk. The beauty of applying new technology here is that I, as a social worker, 
could send out 10,000 messages, each of which are deeply personal because they're based on my specifications as to how I do social work messaging. And then when individuals respond back to me, I can manage those carefully. Um, so yeah, our, our belief is that technology can help us to scale up the personal and that sits at the heart of all the work that we do. Yeah, and, and at the heart of what you were doing as a, in that field work as an anthropologist was to get that understanding, to get that understanding of why people were getting involved and remaining involved with, with this movement. How, at the moment, are you getting that understanding um, as re, as, uh, through your R&D in Moonshot to get that understanding both in the online and the offline space of why people are becoming involved in 2019, 2018, or whenever you have been doing your, your research on this? How are you getting that understanding now? So we do still do some in-person field work. Um, we do we do do focus groups with um, with individuals that we believe to be at risk. One thing I would say is that the our, our definition of at risk for moonshot is really focused on individuals that are exhibiting behaviors that they may be involved in violence. Um, so it's it's far more targeted even than the field work that I did back in in two thousand and nine two thousand and ten. Um, you know, this is really focused on individuals that are potentially, you know, would be potentially truly violent. Um, so we do do a limited amount of in-person field work with mm -hmm. those sorts of communities, but those communities can be difficult to access, especially for an, an organization like ours. Um, you know, our, we, we are not an academic outfit, so objectivity is not something that's easy for us to, um, to, to demonstrate when we're talking to audiences like that. So we necessarily have to then rely on on um, digital forms of, of, uh, of kind of information gathering exercises. We need to do um, di what we call digital focus groups. We'll, do, we'll oftentimes go out and do online, online testing of some of our hypotheses mm -hmm. and look at how an at-risk audience engage with those. Mm -hmm. We will also look at the interests, the wider interests and the wider online behaviors of audiences that we know are engaging with far-right content and look to see, well, what sorts of bands are they listening to? What sorts yeah. of, of um, you know, pop stars and personalities do they, do they admire? Are they interested in sports? And try and get a wider picture around that audience online. Um, and then we'll also interact with those audiences to our best, you know, to our best ability. And that's where um, you know, setting up programs that are essentially intervention programs in the online space would send social workers in to have conversations with those, with those individuals. Mm -hmm. And what kind of interaction do you have um, as a as a private organisation with the relevant governments as well, who in the in the areas where the individuals are based, who you are engaging with, and who you are putting the developing these programmes for? So we do partner with governments to deliver programmes. Um, we, you know, our, our funding comes from a range of sources. Some of it is government, some of it is private sector tech companies, some is foundation funding. Um, we do work with governments where we work. With we are very careful around how we manage and handle data and, the, and, and basically ensure that there are some firewalls there so we're not in a position where we are carrying out surveillance in any way, shape, or form for governments. Um, you know, we're very careful around uh, handing over metadata analyses to, to government partners, but then ensuring that we hold 
the information that is most suitable for interventions or our local intervention providers that we're working with hold that information and do it within the bounds of, of you know, standard, standard requirements in for social work and mm. for and for counseling and, and, and psychotherapy and that sort of work. And going back to um Actually, no, before we go back to the far right, one of the debates that's been going on for for a number of years now is this whole debate around whether online accounts of far right extremists and other extremists, whether they should be disabled, whether they should be taken down. Um, and as an organization who is actively involved in this digital space, what what is your viewpoint individually, but also the viewpoint of Moonshot uh, CV as a whole in relation to a, a tactic such as this? Well, my belief is that um, you know takedowns are important when they're limited and focused. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if if content is truly illegal, and we can get into probably a, a day long conversation about what is illegal and uh, yeah. and you know that varies context to context. Um, you know, I do believe that there are limited amount of illegal content should be taken down. Mm -hmm. That said, when you remove content from the internet, the person that posted it there still exists. Yeah. And so, you know, while I I you know believe there are some valiant efforts to take down content in spaces that it really you know where it can really be destructive, I also from you know for, for us as practitioners that rely on the digital footprint of these individuals as a way for us to find them, reach them, start a conversation with them, we need them to be present in order for us to to find them. And um, you know, we yeah, we we very much rely on information being available online, on freedom of expression. It's something that we as an organization champion. Mm -hmm. um, but I recognize the importance of limited takedowns. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. Okay. And to bring this to a close and to, to bring a full circle, so we started with your research into far right extremism uh, within Sweden. How do you assess the current um, threat posed by far-right extremism and, and far-right terrorism as well, uh, but within Europe, but also North America, where you're from, and, uh, and around the world as well? Where, where do you, how do you, do you assess it now, and where do you see it going? So I often, I would say, you know, over the past 10 years, what I, I've, I've oftentimes been asked a question, which you didn't ask, John, but I'm no. just going to just, 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 I've oftentimes been asked, you know, is the far-right on the right? Yeah. It's a question that journalists love to ask, yeah. and, um, and I've always kind of uh, balked a bit at that question because mm. oftentimes I see I see um, lots of lots of experts going out into the field and saying yes, the far right's on the rise with very little evidence to yeah. actually suggest that. You know, whether we're talking about political parties, um, oftentimes there was a, there was a lot of panic around far right uh, radical right movements being on the rise when actually if you looked historically, they weren't necessarily performing better than they had been in previous mm. previous decades. Mm. Um, so I'd always been hesitant around to talk about the far right on the rise. What I will say is, you know, now having um, having refocused my career now on those that are truly violent, mm -hmm. on the truly violent um, parts of the far right scene, I see these movements getting more brazen. Whether the numbers are increasing, I do not have evidence to suggest that the, the numbers are that those individuals that you know that there are, that there are substantially more individuals getting involved in those movements. I don't have. Mm -hmm. What I do have evidence of is that the movements that have been there and are there now are getting more brazen, more vocal, and are, are, are omnipresent, especially in the online space. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a number of factors which have led to that brazenness, um, 
including sort of you know changes in political winds and what and what people believe believe is is okay to say rather than just hiding it under the under the covers and, mm -hmm. and stigmatizing it. So you know these audiences are brazen. Um, what I will also say is we have a huge amount of evidence that moonshot, um, and I can give some particular countries as examples. Um, but in in the U.S., in Canada, um, in the U.K., in Australia, consistently we find that the scale of violent far right audiences online is vastly larger than the, than the scale of jihadist audiences online. Um, so the scale is almost in the United States. The scale is almost you can't you can't even compare the two. Um, so what I will say is that we yeah we're, we're dealing with a very brazen group, and we're dealing with a group that is particularly in a, in a context like the United States large in number. Um, for us, the brazenness presents an opportunity because if these groups are brazen, especially in the online space, it means we can find them. Yes. And if we can find them, it means we can interact with them, mm. we can understand them, and we can try and try and engage them to change their minds. Mm. Um, so that's what I would say about the current, yeah, the yeah. current situation with the far right, yeah. where I think actually that 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 kind of challenge of them being brazen online is a double-edged yeah. sword. It gives us it gives us the chance to find them. It's an opportunity. Yeah, and that brazenness as an opportunity is a great way of, of looking at it. It's a, I, it's a, yeah, it's it's something something to hold on to, I suppose, and to 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 move to move on with and to to be able to develop. How do you, as an organisation, engage with academia then as well? How how much attention would would Moonshot be paying to to the to the academic publications going out there and individual academics as well as academic organizations. We interact really regularly with with academics that have a have a track record of working on this issue. I mean, loads of your past interviewees yeah. are people that we we have worked with and yeah. continue to work with. It's really important for us to be able to draw on that expertise yeah. um, at various points in time in our in our projects. You know, we we need that expertise to build up the the databases of indicators that allow us to then go out and find those, you know, these movements and these individuals, but then also to inform our strategy for interacting with them. Um, so at all stages of our work, we rely on academic inputs. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I would I would love for us to do more of, and this is an area where you know, if your listeners are, are interested, we would love to collaborate, mm -hmm. is ensuring that the data that we're gathering can be better put to use by the academic mm -hmm. community. Because we're we're gathering a huge amount of data in the online space about the interests and the you know, behaviors of, of, of far right audiences, and I would love to bring that data side by side with academics that have done extensive offline work and to try and see whether we can bring those data sets yeah. together and kind and they can use it in a robust way. Yeah. So um, you know, yes, we collaborate with academics. We we definitely need to do more, mm -hmm. and that's something that if your listeners are, are interested in, I would I would love to hear from them. I'm sure you'll be getting plenty of messages now from academics. Uh, be, it, I, I think it, it would be hugely important. I think that's hugely important for in both areas, um, for both academia and from, with, uh, from CVE to have that interaction together. And I know that Moonshot, as an organization, you've always been eager to interact with, with academics, and it's a, it's, it's a huge strength. But... Um, Vidya, thank you so much for today's interview. That thank was you. thanks for uh, being on. Anyone who wants to uh, find out more about uh, what Moonshot do, what's the best way of finding out for them to find out? Uh, the best way. So our, our website is moonshotcbe.com. Mm -hmm. But if you would like to get in touch with me, feel free to email me at vidya at moonshotcbe.com. Uh, I should probably spell out my name. Uh, it's v i d h y a at moonshotcbe.com. And please feel free to, to get in touch with me. Brilliant. Well, Vidya, thank you so much. And be sure to uh, tune in next week uh, where we'll be talking to 
uh, yet another expert in this area of terrorism or violent extremism. I can't for the life of me remember who it's going to be at the moment, but I'm sure uh, you'll find out when you when you uh, pick up your podcast app next week and see us coming through. If you want to find out more information from Talking Terror, follow us at terror underscore podcast. And be sure to uh, check out all the literature published by IB Taurus, our sponsors. And they can be also followed uh, on Twitter at IB underscore Taurus as well. Uh, so until then, thank you so much, Vidya, and we'll chat to you all soon.